Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men. And we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. Today, we'll be hearing from Bruce C.E. Fleming, founder of the True 316 Project. He's a former academic dean and professor of practical theology. The foundation of the True 316 Project is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book, Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 to 3. Do you know what the 11 Hebrew words mean that God spoke to the woman in the Garden of Eden? Bruce and Joy put that and more in the Book of Eden, Genesis 2 to 3. We invite you to get a copy today and make sure you have a solid foundation for understanding the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible. It turns out when Genesis 3.16 becomes clear, all the other passages become clear too. You can learn more at our website, true316.com. That's tru316.com. And now enjoy today's episode of The Eden Podcast. The focus of this episode is getting this passage right, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. In 1962, Don and Carol Richardson risked their lives to share the gospel with the Sawi people of New Guinea. Their book, Peace Child, tells their unforgettable story of living among a people group where treachery was valued as their highest virtue. <laughs> they would fatten potential victims with friendship before betraying them for slaughter. The very first time these pioneer missionaries tried to tell the Sawi headhunting cannibals of New Guinea the good news about the cross of Christ, things went very wrong. This occurred as they were telling about the night Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. The listeners held their breath as the scene unfolded before them for the very first time. Up came Judas, the follower, to Jesus, his teacher. Teacher, the betrayer said to Jesus, and then kissed him, and the soldiers closed in. The listeners went wild. Oh, what a masterstroke. What a fantastic betrayal. Obviously, they got the message very wrong. In a less spectacular way, people have been getting wrong the message of 1 Corinthians 11. Coming to these verses with the wrong presuppositions, readers and translators alike have missed the message of the passage. They have misread the key verses. I'm joined by Joanne Hegemeyer. Hi, Joanne. Hi, Bruce. And Joanne has written the study guides for this book, Because of Eden, 1 Corinthians 11, 14, and 1 Peter 3. And uh, she's going to guide us through the study guide for chapter 1 and uh, begin with exercise 1. Take it away, Joanne. Thanks. So our first exercise is going to be to identify the five keys to understanding this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. So we're going to walk through each key. And the first question asks, what is that first key? From 1 Corinthians 11, 2, what were the believers in Corinth doing? This is the first key, is Paul's evaluation of what they were doing. Well, the first key is praise. We have to understand this whole passage is about praise. That means he's, he likes what they're doing. He's praising them for doing a good job. And then starting the next passage, uh, starting with verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11, there's something else going on. He says, now I am not praising you for what's coming up because you were giving me, you were doing incorrect things. So they're doing something right in this whole section. A lot of people don't start this passage until verse 3. 
they skip verse 2. And if they do, then they don't realize that this passage is all about praise. I've read commentaries. They talk about, now Paul criticizes the Corinthians in chapter 11. And he criticizes them about something in the first section. Then he criticizes them again in the second section. And uh, I want to be critical about that. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not what's going on. So key number one is praise, verse 11, or 1 Corinthians eleven two. 2, he's saying, I praise you for, and then he talks about what they were doing. And the second key is a, kind of a big picture idea. Earlier in his letter, Paul spoke of three groups within the church. Who were they? And that's in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32, because we're going to ask how each group is addressed or where they are addressed in sections of this next passage. So who were those three groups? So as I was studying this passage, I, I try not to pay attention to the chapter breaks and the verse breaks because those were added long after Paul wrote. And sometimes uh, they're helpful and sometimes they're not. And I noticed that several verses before uh, this passage in chapter 11, in verse 32 of chapter 10, he, he has an, an interesting listing that he gives. He talks about, so let me turn to it, 1 Corinthians 11, 32. And he says, uh, don't give offense either to the Jews or to the Gentiles or to the church of God. And I thought this is an interesting enumeration of three different groups, but they, they bleed over into one another. So he says, he's talking about the Jews, he's talking about the Gentiles, he's talking about the church of God. And this is, I think, is another example when Paul gives you a, an outline of what's coming next. So he's going to be talking about these three different groups, and it's pretty easy to see where they are. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 to 9, he's talking to the Jews, whether it's what he thinks is an inspired outcome of the Old Testament and Jesus' teaching, or whether it's their critical Jewish oral law. All of this in verses 3 to 9 is focusing on the, the Jews who were part of the early church there in, in Corinth. Then in um, 1 Corinthians 11, 11 to 12, he's talking to the whole church at large with some general principles. And then starting with verses 13 up through 15, he's talking to the Gentiles or the non-Jews, the Greeks in the church at Corinth. And he's even appealing to nature, which you never would do in an argument where you're trying to, to win over the agreement of the Jews. You wouldn't appeal to nature, but to the pagans in Corinth who are now believers, you would. So he's talking about these three groups. So key number two is the threefold focus that he does in this passage. So that's a really an important key to keep that in mind. So now after Paul moved on from Corinth and his missionary journeys, the church he founded there continued the practices and the traditions that he had taught them to follow. And they followed the traditions that he had taught them about women and men ministering in the congregation. God raised up both women and men to lead the congregation in worship and to teach God's word. But some wanted to follow their old religious traditions. So that moves us into the third key. In 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen, Paul depicted those who wanted to follow their old traditions rather than what Paul had taught them. So how did Paul describe this group? That's our third key. Yeah, and this is the opposite of what he's praising them for, for following him, because in verse 16, he says, but some are, were contentious. So the key number three is contention. There are some people that are not agreeing with Paul. They're not wanting to practice the, the new traditions or the old traditions that he's taught them to follow. And so they're, eh, they're fighting against him. And in this case, he's going to be quoting them and fighting back against their contentious claims. 
what was that point of contention? That's our key number four. The people he was addressing, Paul was addressing, were challenging Paul. So according to 1 Corinthians 11, 2, what were they challenging Paul about? He doesn't tell us in detail, and he's introducing the whole thing in verse 2, but the basic word he uses is, uh, you remember me in all things, you keep the ordinances or the traditions as I delivered them to you. So it's basically whatever the teaching was, uh, in this case, I believe it's about men and women as they're teaching, and how can they teach, and how should they dress, and what is their place in the church. Now, all of this is being brought up here, and he calls them his traditions. And now we're going to move on to, well, what was he talking about? So in the fifth key, we're going to deal with 13 Greek words in 1 Corinthians 11.10. This was Paul's application. And when you read this in the English translations, something interesting happens. So I'm going to give you several different English translations. Remember, 13 Greek words. And we'll see if you notice something. Here's the first one from the Good News Translation. It says, On account of the angels, then, a woman should have a covering over her head to show that she is under her husband's authority. I'm going to give you another one, Contemporary English Version. And so, because of this, and also because of the angels, a woman ought to wear something on her head as a sign of her authority. Now we're going to go to the Living Bible. So, a woman should wear a covering on her head as a sign that she is under man's authority. In fact, for all the angels to notice and rejoice in. Now we'll go to the NIV. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. And we'll end with the English Standard Version. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So, what do you notice about all these translations? <laughs> They've got a lot of extra words in there. It's not 13 Greek words, but it's uh, 26 English words or 30 English words. Why do they do that? And, and what are they doing when they add words that are totally not in the Greek, like a covering on and things like that? There's just a lot of confusion going on here. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to clarify, quote unquote, clarify the meaning of this verse. Why do they think they have to clarify the meaning of the verse? I think it's because they don't understand it. And they're what Paul said simply and clearly in the Greek, uh, they're trying to clarify for us in English by adding a whole lot of extra words. So beware of people who come bearing extra words when they're trying to translate a verse for you. There's a good one I like in the uh, in the new, what's it called? The Today's New International Version, the TNIV. Do you have that, Joanne, the, the TNIV version of it? I sure do. It says, for this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have authority over her own head. Very simple and straightforward. So if you were going to give a word for this fifth key, then what would it be? Translation. <laughs> so... The key here for us, not for Paul, but the key for us to understand the passage is uh, how has this been translated for us and what does the basic Greek mean? Yes. And that brings us into our second exercise, which was going to be examining the practice that Paul addresses. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, Paul affirms that women are full members of the body of Christ and they're fully gifted by the Holy Spirit to minister in the name of Jesus. So Paul appeals to Genesis and to reason to restate his case, and he's firm. There's no room for dissension on this point of doctrine and of practice. So we're going to go into this first question. Using the today's new international version of 1 Corinthians 11.10 and also 1 Corinthians 11.4, 
In what ways were the Christians in Corinth remembering Paul's teaching and keeping the tradition that he delivered to them? It's really striking. I'm going to read from the old King James here for verse 4. It says, uh, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. So there's something going on with the idea of putting something on your head, and it's dishonoring you if you do it. And then we're talking about a head again in verse um, 10. So he talks about having authority over your own head. Um, so we're going to go into that more as we continue here. Well, there is an important teaching that Paul gives. It's not in this letter. It's in the second letter that he sends them. And so that second teaching that he gives, that second letter, shows how this practice in 1 Corinthians 11.4 reflects the new tradition Paul was saying. So it's in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18. Here's what it says. Now, if the ministry of death chiseled in letters on stone tablets came in glory so that the people of Israel could not gaze on Moses's face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory. Indeed, what once had glory has in this respect lost its glory because of the greater glory. For if what was set aside came through glory, much more has the permanent come in glory. Since then we have such a hope, we act with complete frankness. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil is still there. It is not unveiled, since in Christ it is set aside. Indeed, to this very day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So how does that teaching tie in with what the tradition that Paul was giving them? You know, we've got a lot of key words here that we're going to see in this passage. We're talking about glory and, and veils and, and all of this. So there's, there's a whole lot of Old Testament practices going on. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, we don't talk about veils. We don't talk about, you know, these kind of things. So these developed later on as we were having a, a typology develop as, as God is showing them what is, this, what is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross really mean or who was he or, you know, what is our sin nature, etc.? Um, and so now as he's moving into this passage, he's going to talk about, in the context of all of these things, he's going to talk about what do you have to do now? Uh, when you were in the Old Testament, you had certain restrictions, but now in Christ, we don't need those restrictions to teach us. We can actually see in Christ's person and his work and what happened historically. We can see what happens. We can see what that means. And therefore, we don't have to restrict ourselves in certain ways. We don't have to limit ourselves to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Now we're out, we're preaching the word, we're spreading the word all around the world. Um, can you take us through the rest of number two there, Joanna? Uh, what, I don't know if we have the time to go into all these verses, but what are some of the passages we talk about next? 
We want to show students that this isn't something Paul was just telling to the Corinthians, although he certainly does tell them more than once. In 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about uh, being of one body. That's right before this passage. Right after this passage, he again talks about being one body with many members. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 12. He also talked about this with the Galatians. In fact, there's a famous verse that he says to the Galatians in 328. He says, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female for all. Or actually, he says there's no longer male and female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. He pulls again on that theme in his letter to the Ephesians and again to his letter in Colossians. And this wasn't just Peter talking about this. I'm sorry, Paul. Peter also talked about this. He just used a slightly different imagery in his first letter. Chapter two, he talked about being living stones built into one spiritual house. So in each of these passages, we show an idea of all believers being equally one in and with Christ. So what's going on now is we're going to we're going to get into uh, this passage in in the time to come. But in verses five and six, um, there's a there's a change in tone. It was starting to sneak in maybe in verse four, but it's very obvious in verses five and six. And what this is, is Paul, I think, quoting in verses four through six, quoting the, the proposal from the from the legalists in Corinth. And this is the old religious tradition they still want to follow. And so, for example, I'm still, I've got my old King James here, so I'll read it. Uh, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaved. And if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. <laughs> and a lot of people get confused with this, and they should be, because the translations have neglected to put quotation marks around verses 4, 5, and 6. If you do that, it's pretty simple. You can see the proposal that they're making, and then you can see the reaction that Paul makes to that afterwards. We have an example of this kind of interaction from Jesus uh, many, many times. Jesus fought against the added and non-biblical regulations of legalistic Judaism during his earthly ministry, and he confounded self-righteous sinners who focused on following these rules while missing the heart of God's message. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus identified and rejected their regulations. Six times he said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and what's he doing? He's referring to what they were, had been teaching incorrectly, and now he's going to tell us what to do. In Matthew 5, 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, and 43. All of these times, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. Now, Paul was one of those people who practiced those extra restrictions and regulations from the Jewish oral law. As a Pharisee, Paul had been a scrupulous follower of these laws. But as a Christian, he left behind these empty practices. Jesus the Messiah had fulfilled the Old Testament law and gave each and every believer full status as a child of God, full access to the throne. During the years following his conversion, Paul became skilled at discerning and discarding the dry husks of legalism. He excelled in teaching truth straight from the Old Testament, especially how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the coming Messiah. So we want to talk then about people who opposed Paul and his understanding of Jesus' teaching. And there really were two groups. 
the first group of opponents to Paul's teaching we see in a number of passages in Acts and also in a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Um, I'll read you one of the passages in Acts. It's Acts 14.2, and it says, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So how would we uh, sort of categorize this first group of opponents? These are not believers. They're Jewish uh, believers, uh, practicers of Jewish religion up to that time. And they're from outside the church, and they're saying, you, you guys, you have to be following our Jewish rules, and here they are, and you're not following them. Exactly so. So then in the second group, there was another group that opposed Paul, and they also are featured in the book of Acts and in a letter that Paul wrote to Galatians. We have a number of those passages for students to look up, and I'll read you one of them. It's from Acts 15.5, and it says, But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. So how would we categorize the second group? Well, these are the Jews that, that became believers. Now they're inside the church, but they still, uh, they say, we, we've got to be practicing these Old Testament laws. And when they said that, yeah, the Old Testament laws that still, still held true, still needed to be practiced. And then they were also saying, we, we have to do uh, these extra regulations. We have to follow those. And Paul's trying to work with them now. He's trying to say, no, we don't have to do that. This is the reason we don't have to do that. This is what we should do. Thinking then about your knowledge of the Old Testament, this is the last question we ask students. Why would these groups resist Paul's teaching and the traditions that he was giving them? There's a major shift going on here between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God is teaching us uh, what is a perfect lamb? What is a spotless lamb? What is the purpose of a sacrifice? How is God holy? Uh, how are we sinful? How can we uh, reach God? So there's what I call, uh, well, scholars call typology. There are these symbols that are used and these specific practices that you have to follow. Jesus fulfilled these typologies and we understand who Jesus is from all of these Old Testament pictures acted out and practiced in the Old Testament. When Jesus came and did it, when he lived it and filled, fulfilled all of this, uh, we can move on beyond that. Another way of looking at it is to say that in the Old Testament, we had a centripetal gospel in the sense that you, you, you focus, you take it from the outside and you focus on the center. So, um, the Queen of Sheba left Africa and she came to the temple in Jerusalem. And different people were to uh, leave Babylon and come to uh, the, the, the gospel in the, in the temple again in Jerusalem. The, all the nations were to look to Jerusalem to find out what God was teaching us and who God was and to meet God there. But then with Christ and the fulfilling of the promise of the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, now there's a centrifugal force, and we are spun out from that center. We go from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. Now it's the time to enter Paul's world with the Corinthians. In Ephesians, we see that he moved us beyond Eden. And in this passage, he moves us back to Eden, in a sense, because he takes us back to Eden before all the rules and regulations were instituted as teachers for us. And he focuses on the rich relationship God has with us as we walk with him unveiled in the garden and see his glory face to face. Thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast. 
Do you have your own copy of the Book of Eden, Genesis 2 to 3, and our other books on the seven key passages on women and men in the Bible? Visit our website at true316.com. Do you want to go deeper? You're invited to enroll in the current study unit of True School. Take a look. Go to true316.com slash school.